Good morning, Outpost. I, I think we wanted that song one more time, but um, no, man, it's, it's great to see so many friendly, familiar faces, and I'm glad that you guys all uh, got the memo to flip your times forward an hour, or maybe, maybe I'm not glad, but no, I'm glad you guys are here and, um, and excited um, to really just be able to share with you guys what God has just been really working through my heart in this last week as, as we look at um, our passage today, and um, I don't want to spend a, a whole lot of my background story for those of you that might not know me, but um, I would encourage you, if you do want to know more about myself and my lovely wife, Ashley, down here, you guys can make your way to the, uh, the Outpost webpage, and after you guys read Chet and Priscilla's story, um, you guys can click on, there's a tab that's, I think it says like more or something like that, and it says Outpost Stories, and, and Ashley and my story is on there as well, along with with a, a bunch of other stories, and, and really it's, it is the reason that um, I'm af- even able to stand before you guys here today because of the work um, that God has done in my life and my wife's life, and, um, and again, and just all those stories are a great testament to the grace of God, um, and that's, that's really why we do these stories, is that so you guys can see that God is, in fact, performing miracles changing people's lives, and just we want to be an encouragement to you guys in that. So, um, so anyways, so I, was, I got a lot of time to, to sit with Greg this week in preparation for, um, for our passage, and, and I kind of told him, I said, I find a little bit of humor in me being able to stand here today, because uh, growing up all through, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, all the way into college, I was a 4.0 student, and um, until I got to one class, and it was the only class I ever received a B in, and it was public speaking. And so, <laughs> so I told Greg, I said, and, I, and I'm not telling you guys that so that you, you think I'm some, like, brainiac or anything like that. It's, that is not the case. It actually had everything to do with uh, my fear of failure and people-pleasing that I excelled so much in, in academics, but we don't have nearly enough time to cover that this morning. So, um, But no, I, I tell you this because uh, my, my professor and I kept kind of getting in like battling head to head, and she kept telling me, you know, I'm giving you a B because you're not talking about anything that really excites us in the class. She, you know, and I was a finance major, so I said, well, I'm, I'm preparing for my profession, right? I said, I want to teach, or I want to speak on, you know, terms that, and, you know, uh, ideas that I'm going to have to know, and so I said, this is relevant to me. I really don't care if it's relevant to the class. Like, I'm preparing for my future, <laughs> and she says, well, if, if that's the case, that's fine, but I'm going to give you a B for the, for the semester, and I said, well, I guess it'll be the one B I ever get, but I told Greg this morning, I said, man, I said, I really hope that's not the case this morning. I said, I hope that to each and every one of you, there's something relevant here today, so, <laughs> so anyways, but, um, but gosh, you guys, um, <laughs> I've been really excited for this week. Um, Greg said, if you feel nervous, just tell people you're excited. And so I'm, ex- I'm excited to be able to stand be- before you guys this week. And, and full disclosure, Greg, um, Greg challenged me today, and he said, he said, Matt, he goes, I don't want you to take up a manuscript because I don't want you to sit and just read off of a, p- a piece of paper. He goes, I want you to talk to us. I want you to engage us. So, so this could possibly be the shortest sermon that you ever hear. Um, but for those of you that actually know me, like my community group, you might be panicking a little bit because in the back of your mind, you're thinking this might be the longest sermon I've ever had to sit through. So, um, but you guys, in all honesty, I'm just so excited um, for what God's been showing me and what I get to share with you today. Um, and, and realistically, as we, as we dive in, this is one of the most monumental, one of the most monumental events um, that we get to take a look in Scripture. Um, we get to look into the arrival of the great king, who is 
actually shows us that he's the great servant. Um, he's the king for a new kingdom of a new era, the kingdom of heaven. And it's because of this king and his sacrifice that we get to even sing songs like Chet just let us in. And I mean, that was, that was just an awesome song. So, so anyways, um, you guys excited? I am excited. <laughs> um, so out of reverence from God's word, we've been doing this. Um, I'd like you to stand for the reading of the passage. And for those of you that haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a walk through Matthew. And so this morning, um, Chet, yeah, there you go. There's your Bible, bud. Um, we're going to be picking up in chapter 3. So Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let us pray. Father, we, um, we come to you this morning, and um, God, we just ask that you would, these words that we've just read will just wash over our over our lives, um, God, we 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 see the 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 picture of humility here, and God, we just ask for um, our hearts to be humbled in your presence, and um, and God, I just I just ask that these are not that these would not be my words that are spoken today, God, that they would just simply be your words and your truth as they are presented to us in Scripture. And with that, Amen. Yeah, go ahead and you guys can be seated. So after 2,000, nearly 2,000 years or about 2,000 years of redemptive history recording in the, recorded in the prophecies of the Old Testament, the voice of God goes silent. So we kind of, we got to hear a bit a little bit this in our introduction to the book of Matthew. And there was not a single word from God in the form of prophecy for nearly 400 years. I mean, we see angels speaking to people like Mary and Joseph um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
But God finally breaks his silence to the prophets in the middle of the desert and gives John his mission. So we know from our, our preview that Matthew was written to the Jewish people, right? And so that we know that, that prophecies fulfilled was a very, very important thing to them. And so as Matthew writes, he, he consistently references, you know, the prophetic word from the Old Testament. Um, and so I know that I could sit here and we could walk through line by line and just pull out all the references to the Old Testament, but my wife said out of safety for, for you guys, um, I'm not allowed to do that. So, so we didn't need anybody just, you know, passing out or something like that. But so, so this morning we've broken it into three sections. Um, and for all you note takers out there, we, we made it easy for you. We made them all start with a P. And so, um, so hopefully it'll be easy to remember. But the first one is going to be the purpose and preparation of John the Baptist. The second section that we're going to look at is the pride and presumption of the self, self-righteous. So those first two, you get kind of a two-for-one deal, two Ps in each. Um, and then our third section is the pleasing and beloved son. And so as we jump into the first section, the purpose and preparation of John the Baptist, I want to, I want to just jump back to the, to the book of Luke really quick because Matthew doesn't give us a, a very in-depth, you know, um, introduction to John, whereas Luke, uh, we all know that Luke was a physician and, and what do you want to call him, a historian, and so he gives us a little bit more of an in-depth um, picture of who, of who John the Baptist was. So look at, um, if, you, if you flip over there real quick, Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 17. This is after the, the angel of the Lord Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple, and, and he gives him a prophecy, and he says... Um, Starting in verse 17, it says, and he will be called, and he's speaking of the son that they're going to bear. You know, uh, Zechariah and both Elizabeth were advanced in years, and um, so there's, there's kind of a divine, well, there is a divine nature of the birth of John, and, um, and the angel says that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then if you flip might be one page over, but jump over to verse 76 in chapter 1, and it also says of John, after his birth, and we know that Zechariah just received a speech back, he went uh, mute because of his disbelief from, from the word of the angel, and starting in verse 76, it says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so that we see the coming of John, the, the, the purpose of John is divine by nature. God, God visits his, his parents and says, you're going to bear a son, and he's going to be the one that prepares the way of the Lord. And so, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about the context of this and the, the preparation, and, and um, I don't know what you guys think of when you think of, you know, a coming king and the preparations of a coming king, but those of you that know me know I, I, I like my movies. And so I thought it's only fitting to, uh, to give a quick movie reference here. So do I have any Gladiator fans in the room? Yeah, yeah it's awesome. If you haven't seen Gladiator, I don't know what you're doing with your life. So uh, maybe, maybe sometime this week you should, uh, should go check it out. But no, it's a, it's a great movie. Uh, it's, one of, it's a movie based in one of my most favorite periods of time. Um, but we see right after, in the, in the beginning, there's a battle. And it's the Romans and they're fighting the barbarian hordes of the north, right? 
And so it's, this, it's just this brutal battle. It's snowing. It's cold. And uh, the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, is on the battlefront. And Maximus, who becomes the hero of the story, you know, Maximus Decimus Meridius, you know, it's like, yeah, he's, he's our guy, Russell Crowe. And um, so he's, <clears throat> we, we find that, that the emperor has more favor over Maximus than he does his own son, which was not necessarily customary in the time. But um, there's a meeting between uh, Maximus and uh, Marcus Aurelius, and he basically says, I want to I pass my kingdom on to you. And, and, um, and so for all of us that know the movie, we know that doesn't happen because Commodus shows up right at the end of the battle and ends up murdering his father in his tent by um, suffocating him with his pillow. And so, so you know, that's, so it's a, yeah, good movie. But, um, <laughs> but we see, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty uplifting, right? But we see, so at that point, um, the tradition was the, the next successor in line becomes emperor. So, so Commodus, by default, becomes emperor of Rome. And so word gets back to the kingdom, to the city, that there's a new emperor. And so as they ride back into the city center, there's this picture. And Marcus, or sorry, uh, Commodus is on this chariot with his sister. And they're riding into the city center. They're riding into the square. And there's this just absolute view of just... I mean, just grandeur. There's, they ride in under the arch, and there's, there's trumpets playing. There's drums playing. There's people that are just lining the square. They're, they're clothed in their most you know, beautiful clothing. Their chariots are inlaid with gold. I mean, it's just it's a picture of opulence. The, the horses, I mean, I've never seen more beautiful horses in my life that are pulling this chariot. And it's just, it's a, it's a picture of just, you know, every expense paid and every preparation made. For the welcome, and, and it turns out he's a lousy, lousy king. So I mean, all this, all this to say, and it's, and it's in preparation for this guy that just ends up, you know, running his father's kingdom into the ground. But you know, as I think about that, I think about the manpower, the expense, the time, the preparation that it takes to it, to usher in a man into a new position, and um, and also, you know, when when. Um, people would travel, when royal entourages would travel during this period, they would send out people ahead of them. And they would, these people were, they were engineers, they were road workers, they were all these different professions, but they would go out and they would make ready the path for the king. And what that looked like, it was fixing roads, it was fixing bridges, it was doing all this thing, it was letting the villages or the, you know, the towns know that the, the king was going to be coming through there at some point in time. And so they spent months preparing the roads so that the emperor or the king might not have to be delayed or, you know, run into a situation that is inconvenient for him. And so I think of that and I think of the picture that we see here, and it is not at all the same picture, right? I mean, it's, it's vastly, vastly different. And what's, what's kind of, what God's been showing me is he does this time after time after time after time through the scripture, right? And so he says, you know, you guys are expecting this, but I'm going to do this. And he totally flips up on its head this expectation that we have of what a king would come like and what a king would look like. And so we have a guy that's wandering around in the wilderness wearing the roughest of clothes, and he is preparing the way for who we come to know as the ultimate king, the king of kings, as Scripture will call him. Now, I've never been to the Judean wilderness, but thanks to Google Earth, I think I've got a pretty good idea of what it looks like. So, um, so as I'm checking out the Judean wilderness, I'm like, 
And, and Greg and I were talking about it. It's like, you know, it actually kind of reminds me of the McCullough Peaks. So as you, as you drive to Grable, it's a super scenic road. But if you drive to Grable and you look off to the north right outside of town are the McCullough Peaks. And, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, it's just like, man, it's like, if I chose a place to live off the land, that is the last place that I would want to go. I mean, it does not speak, you know, any essence of a homey feel or a life-sustaining feel. But nonetheless, this is where John is raised. This is where he grows up and where he spends the majority of his life. And so Matthew starts out our passage by establishing that John is the prophet that was spoken of. And so the prophet Isaiah writes in chapter 40, verses 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then he goes into this description of John, and he's described by wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And this is exactly how, if you guys look back into 2 Kings chapter 1, this is the exact depiction of Elijah. And so, so Matthew's setting up for the Jewish people that this is the prophet. I know his name's John, but this is the prophet who was to come. And if you read, it actually says he, was, he came in the spirit of Elijah. And so he's establishing for the Jewish people that this is the one that was promised, and this is the one that, who's, that is to come. And then we look, and it says, you know, he ate locusts and honey, and I'm like, oh, my. It's like, we're, we're in beef country, right? It's like, I couldn't imagine being out there eating a bunch of bugs. And, but we also know from the Levitical law that locusts were one of the only um, clean in- insects that the people of Israel were allowed to eat. It was locusts and I think some crickets or something like that, but... <laughs> Um, so, so there's your protein, guys, a bunch of crickets, and you get some honey. And that's the other thing. Like, I mean, I think of honey, and I think of this, the bear squeeze bottle, and you, you, know, you put it on your toast, and you put it on everything else in your tea. But, but for John to, to harvest honey, he had to go out. He was in the wilderness, and he had, to, he had to risk getting honey at the expense of just being stung multiple times. And so it wasn't, it's not this, like, you know, kind of really pleasant picture, but... Um, so we see that he, ra- he was raised in the wilderness, right? And there's many speculation as to why John lived in the wild. But there does seem to be um, a continuous motif of the prophets hearing from God in the wilderness. So where are my band kids at? You, be proud. I was a band kid. I, yeah. Band kids can be cool too. So you guys, we learn what a motif is, right? And a motif is it's a recurring theme throughout a composition or story. And so as we look at the, the motif of the prophets coming from the wilderness, we're reminded of Moses in the desert when he's spoken to by the burning bush. We look at Elijah who is ministered to by the ravens in the desert. And so, you know, it could be that this is just part of the prophecy, but it also could be, and I, and I kind of like to think of it this way, that for any of you that have been, spent any time in the wilderness around here, there is a silence and a solitude that I think one would be able to hear a whisper from God. It's away from all the distractions and the calamity of, of our daily lives and everything that tries to pull us away from, you know, from our relationships. And, and it's just, it's, it's simplicity. It's, it's just a nakedness that is, is peaceful. And so I, I think that might have part to do with that. And, and wives, like, Take a deep breath. I'm not telling your husbands, like, hey, go live in the wilderness for the rest of your life because, you know, you might be able to hear from God. Because I know there's some guys in here that are thinking that sounds pretty cool. So at one point in my life, I thought that seemed pretty cool, too. So, 
Um, but anyway, so, and then something about, I wanted to point out about the prophets is that the Jews loved their prophets. And so, so here they've been anxiously waiting for the return of Elijah. And they start hearing about this guy, this crazy guy out in the wilderness, preaching. And he does actually have the appearance of Elijah. So, I mean, I'm just thinking of the, the excitement that this causes, right? And so the word starts to spread. And so I, back in high school, I worked just a couple doors down here at a place called Cassie's Supper Club. And I waited tables. I started out as a busboy, worked my way up, waited tables all the way through a um, couple years into my college days. But there was an event that happened back there, and I'm sure there's probably some people in the room that remember this. So I'm waiting tables one night, and, and you know, it's just a busy summer night. People are coming. People are going. You know, it's just, it's a lot of commotion. And in walks Vince Gill and Amy Grant. And we're just like, I mean, I grew up watching Amy Grant at Hills Alive, so I, I recognized her first. <laughs> and I was like, hey, there's Amy Grant. And everybody else was like, oh, I don't know who that is, but Vince Gill's here. And it was, it was kind of crazy because, I mean, here we are, and Vince Gill and Amy Grant, they come in, and they're with their family, and they sit down, and they, eat, they start to eat. And um, they finish eating, and, and, and Vince says, you know, hey, can I, can I talk to the owner? And so Steve Singer comes out. He was the owner. He was in the kitchen cooking, and they got to chatting. Well, Steve, if you know any of the singers or Cassie's Supper Club, they had a band for, I think the band played at my parents' wedding. So they've been around a minute. <laughs> and so, no, no, I'm not calling you guys old. I'm not calling you guys old, but... But um, so everybody knows West the band if you're from Cody. And so, so Steve, and, Steve and Vince start talking, and Vince says, you know what, Steve? He goes, I, I think we should just jam. He goes, let's, let's just get up on stage. Let's get the band up there, and let's jam. And so all of us are sitting there like, oh, my gosh, this is happening. Like, Vince Gill's here. He's getting on stage. They're just going to play in this bar, restaurant in Cody, Wyoming. And so I'm not joking, you guys. Within the hour, you could not walk in Cassie's Supper Club. There were so many people. I mean, and this was before like Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. And it's just like, no, people were getting on the phone, calling, hey, Vince Gill's going to be playing at Cassie's. You guys got to come down. I mean, it was just packed. And I mean, the party was hopping. And so nothing against Vince Gill by any means, but people hadn't been sitting around waiting for him for 400 years. So as I look at this, I'm going, the, the, the surrounding regions just had to be on fire with people just talking about, you know, the prophet is here, he's here, he's here. So I, I just picture this, this vision of people just dropping everything that they were doing. That's what people did that night to go watch Vince Gill. And I mean, like, I knew one song of his. And it's like, but here people just, they abandon their life and they're heading to the wilderness to hear a message from John. And the message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, I mean, I look at this and I go, there's such a simplicity in this message. It's not this huge, long, you know, thing that he's trying to, to, to say. It's just, it's, it's simple. And this, and this message wasn't just for people outside the Jewish faith or the Jewish religion or the Jewish people, sorry, because they too were unclean and needing to repent. And, you know, and I, and I think about this and it's just like, so, okay, you know, sometimes we have a, a habit of making checklists, right? And John's saying this is not just one of those things that you check a box on. And so I was reading, um, I was reading on this subject in R.C. Sproul, 
I like to call him R.C. Sproul because he kind of growls when he talks, so I kind of associate that with his name. But R.C. Sproul says this about repentance. He said, the call here is to a radical conversion, to turn from sin and intoxication with this world and direct one's soul and heart to the things of God. And there is no inclusion for anyone in the kingdom of God who has not done that. And so, again, this might be a a simple message, but to those of us, it's not necessarily an easy message because it means abandoning everything that we've come to know. And I mean, we live in a world, right, where every day we're constantly just hammered with, oh, you guys, you want your best life? Hey, take this supplement. Take, you know, uh, you know take this class. You know, take, get this degree. I mean, I, I look back when I was in, in high school going to college. It's like, hey, if you, want a, if you want a good life, you got to go to college. You got to graduate. You got to get this degree, right? I mean, we're constantly fed all these material things to say that this is what leads to life. And John and R.C. Sproul and these other guys are saying, it's, it's something totally different. It's nothing that can be found in this world. And, and, the, and the picture is just, it's simple. I mean, we don't have a lot to do but be, to, to repent. So I was listening to a guy, um, I was listening to a guy on a radio about six months ago, I was driving in the truck, and, and he was talking about, I mean, talking about this issue, but he was talking about just parenting. And he said, he settled something along the lines that I can't imagine trying tirelessly to fool my son or to fool my kids that their father is perfect and everything that I do and every decision I make is right. And he said, but I would rather my kids and my son know that his father is a sinner that makes mistakes day in and day out, but whose life can be marked by humility and who is willing to quickly repent. And I mean, man, that, that hit me just as I was driving down the road that one day going, man, it's like parents, sometimes we just, we want our kids to look to us as this, this you know, this example to follow. And, and granted, we should be an example to follow, but we are not the ultimate example to follow and we're not the perfect example to follow. And so as I think about how I apply this to my kids and, and how I want them to see it, it's, it's, it's found in God's word, right? Because we all know that Sin's going to continue to happen until the day that we pass from this life into the next. And John knows this just as well. But he's telling us that we need to keep seeking repentance. And I love how, I love how he even says this. So he says, keeping with repentance, which is actually like, an, like a, a continuous perfect verb. So it's, it's this continual attitude and this continual um, habit of repenting. And so... A scripture that kind of stuck out to me here is found in 1 Peter 5, and 5, verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And so in John is saying, and also in, in this passage is saying, we need to humble ourselves. I mean, we really have no right to come to the Father because of our sin. And so first, our first action should be a posture of humility, humbling our heart, humbling our, our mind. I've said it numerous, I've heard it said numerous times here, um, if you try to do God's job, he's going to do yours. And as I think about that, I think back in my life, man, there's been, there's been time after time after time after time where I feel like I've, I've overstepped my bounds and, and tried to assume the position of God and 
and you know, it was my job to point out this and that. And I'll tell you, those are some of the most humbling times in my life. So, you know, um, John is saying here that true repentance is of the heart. And there should be a visible evidence that we no longer seek our own personal desires and selfish ambitions, but rather the will of God. And so we should look different than the rest of the world in our repentance. One of our core values here at Outpost is live authentically. Um, if you're a member here, I, I, I trust that you guys know this in our scripture that coincides with our live authentically core values. Therefore, it's found in James 5.16, sorry. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. And so as I look at this, I mean, I know it's true in my life, but if, if you're not a member of Outpost and you know somebody that's a member, I would challenge you guys to ask any one of the members that has been in community, that has been walking down this road of living authentically, and ask them if they are the same today as they were last year, or if they're the same today as if they were six months ago, or if they regret it. I mean, you guys, there was so much in my life and my heart that I, I didn't want to be authentic about because I was afraid that, you know, that people would no longer accept me and that people would go, ah, I knew there was something wrong with that kid. You know, but I'm telling you guys that through this process of, of repenting, living authentically, praying for one another in, in Christ, praying for our brothers and sisters, I know that my life, there has been absolutely, without a doubt, more joy, more peace, more life, more freedom, and more fruit than any self-help book can claim to give you out there. This, this is what changes people's lives. And so we see this is, this is happening, and, and actually it seems to be going pretty well. So it says, um, all the region of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to be baptized him, and they were confessing their skins. And so it seems, seems the message is being received, and people are being transformed. But then we're going to change into a people that are not coming to confess their sins. And so it says, so this is where we jump into the pride and presumption of the self-righteous. So starting in chapter, or verse 7, sorry. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him, to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So I know um, I, I grew up in this small town, and many of you might have, or you might have grown up in a small town similar. And I think we've all learned that if there's, a, if there's a large group of us congregating and um, we're doing something that might not be quite legal and might not be quite constructive, it's only a matter of time before the cops show up, right? Yeah, it's, word spreads fast in a small town. So as, as, we, can, as we can imagine in this, in this situation, people are going out, people are spending time in the desert, they're, they're hearing this message, they're receiving this message. It's only a matter of time before word gets backed to the religious authorities of the area, right? And so here we see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're coming out to say, what is going on here? Who is this guy that really wasn't sent by us? Because in all reality, they were the ones that were in control of what was being preached in the area. And so they come out to, it's an observe and report mission, right? And so John sees them. And man, he doesn't sugarcoat it, does he? I know last week, um, and some of you guys might remember, Greg, Greg something, said something along the lines of, wouldn't you guys have liked to have had warnings, you know, in your youth, in your, your early years of 
things that you're doing or decisions that you would make that really wouldn't go well and would cause pain and would cause harm and would cause destruction in our lives. I mean, I, I look back at that, man, you know, some of us, yeah, we heard those and chose to do them anyways. And, and that's the exact same thing that's happening here. I mean, John issues a warning to the Pharisees, and, and it's a warning to us as well. It's not just for these guys at this time. This is a warning for all of us. And, and, that's, and I just love that. I mean, he doesn't hold any punches here. He calls them a brood of vipers. I mean, he's calling them a, a, a pile, a host, a family of snakes. And I think a lot of you know the imagery that, that's found here, right? I mean, we go, to, we go to the serpent in the garden who's the great deceiver, whose kiss is filled with poison. And we know that Satan is characterized throughout the Bible to take on the form of a snake. So John, as he's sitting here calling out these, these, the highest of the religious authority in this region, he's calling them sons of Satan, in essence. I mean, this is a bold, bold move. And I mean, I, I, mean, I, just, I think of how I would have reacted if, if, say, the governor would show up and I was doing something that went against what he was saying. You know, would I have the faith to sit there and call out saying, you know, this is, this is the way. You guys, what you guys have been doing is not what we're called to. And so, and we know, actually, we know that um, John ends up paying for this truth with his life, right? So we find not later, not too much later in this, in this book, he ends up losing his head at the, at the expense of some gal who performed a dance who wanted to appease her mom, Right? And he's sitting in prison for the, about a duration of a year. And it's because he was willing to speak truth and to not shy away from it that he ended up losing his life. And, you know, and I look at that and I go, man, there's been so many times throughout my life where, you know, I've been confronted with a situation where I've shied away from speaking the truth because I've feared what other people might think of me. And yeah, we might not be at risk of losing our heads, but we're more concerned with keeping our social status than truly being a truth teller. And John was a truth teller. And so I find you know, a great example in him here that I can that use to encourage my own life. Um, so I've, I have to um, give a little credit to a guy named Todd Wagner here because he was... Um, I, I listened to him, and actually he started showing me things in the Bible that I had never known growing up in the church and never even really heard of. And so um, there was a lot that he said that really, that really finally reached me in my deepest, darkest hour. And he said it this way. He said, if you need your position or if you need your friendship so much that you are unwilling to speak the truth to that friend, that friend doesn't need you, you need him. And so I was sitting there thinking about it. And it's just like, man, how many times has that friend needed to really hear the truth? And I was not faithful in, in telling him the truth. And so then John goes on to say, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And so, you know, for a long time there was this idea that because you belong to the, the, the Jewish tribes, the people of Israel, the people of Abraham, that somehow that kind of, you know, gave you like backdoor access into the kingdom. And it's like, and John's saying, nah. He goes, that is not 
the picture here. He goes, you just as much as everyone else needs this message. Sorry, give me just a sec here, guys. Um, and the other thing that I, that I really gathered here is, as God's saying that from these stones, he's raised it, re- able to raise up children for Abraham, I think back into Adam. And God raised Adam out of the dirt. And so he's saying, I've done this before. He's saying, don't, don't think for a minute that just because you guys think you're something you're not doesn't mean I can't go find something else. I can take these stones and turn them into my people. So I know sometimes this, this, uh, this might seem a little heavy right now, guys. Sorry. <laughs> I'm kind of uh, realizing that now. But, um, but there's been times in my life, too, where I've, I've, thought, I've thought a lot more highly of myself than I really ought to. And I've thought, man, I've, I've been doing all these good things. And I've been, I, you know, I go to church every Sunday. I do this. I'm involved in youth group. I'm involved in, you know, community group or life groups or whatever you want to call them. I'm doing these things. I'm checking all these boxes. But my heart was never at a point of really knowing who I was deep inside. And so sometimes, yeah, we can get tied up in all this religiosity and everything and, and hypocrisy. And, and I'm telling you, you guys, right up here, you're looking at one of the biggest hypocrites that, you're, that is among you guys. And it's only because of the grace of God that he has opened my eyes to that. And I, and I thank him each and every day. So John walks into the next, the next section, and he gives us an image here. He gives us an image of the fruit tree. And um, I don't know if you guys know Matt and Kendra Cook, but um, I kind of wanted to pick Matt's brain on this a little bit, but he's actually up at his orchard in Montana. And so John gives us a picture, and he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so as we look at this picture, it's a picture of preparations have been made to cut the tree down, right? So the roots have been exposed. So back then, I mean, we, they didn't have stump grinders, right? They didn't have these machines that could pull up a tree from its... So they had to literally dig around the roots to expose them to be able to cut them out because you didn't remove a tree without removing the roots because then they still took up valuable... Um, real estate in your orchard, right? So if you wanted that new tree to grow well, you had to cut out the roots of the old tree. And so John is saying, you guys, we've made the, pre- the preparations have been made. You know, your tree is about to come down. And so he gives them a sense of the urgency of this message. And in the beginning, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, it's here. It's among us. It's, it's right before you. So don't waste time. Repent now. John goes on to say, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John shows us a picture of humility. And you guys, this is the guy who Jesus later says, there has been no man greater than John that has come from a woman's womb, right? I mean, I, I, I think of that and I go, here's, and John is saying, I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandals. And at that time, in that time of, of, of civilization, this was only an act that was performed by slaves or servants. When masters would come home, they didn't take off their own shoes, 
They sat down, and the servant came and took off their shoes. They were filthy. They were muddy. They might have been walking through. Who knows? You know, go to a farm, and you'll see. But he's saying, and, and John, so he gives a very clear picture of when we're compared to Christ, we are nothing. And he's saying, I am not even worthy to undo his shoes. And so as I look at how, you know, when I'm approaching God, whether it's in prayer or whether it's in, in worship or anything, it's like, it's like where, Matt, where is your heart? Have you taken the time to humble yourself to come before the king? Or are you coming with pride in your life that, you know, you're a pretty good guy? And so we now walk into our last section. I have no idea how, where I'm at on time. Hopefully you guys are all good. Um, we walk into our last section, which is the pleasing and beloved son. And there's a picture here, um, and, I, and I've, I've wanted to kind of equate it and compare it to a coronation of a king, right? And so, you know, and we can't ignore the fact that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. So there is, there is an intent here. Jesus comes with the sole purpose of being baptized by John, right? It's not like he was just, eh, I'm on my way down. I might stop in, see, see this guy they're talking about. No, he came with the purpose to be baptized, and so it says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Again, John was, I think he was a little bit confused by this whole situation because he's saying, he's saying, you know, Jesus, my, my baptism is a baptism of repentance of sin. And this is one of the greatest testaments to the sinlessness of Jesus. John is saying, you don't need my baptism. Saying this isn't for you. This is for the people that have sin in their life, and we know that you are the sinless lamb. You're the lamb without blemish. And so I love this, and it's like, you know, Jesus is kind of like a parent in this situation where it's like, you know, when your kids keep asking you questions, and you're just like, you find you're just like, it's because I said so, right? It's just like, how many parents, I mean, I did, I did that last night. It's like, it's like, why, Dad? Why, Dad? It's like, because I said so. And they go, that's not a reason. <laughs> you know, it's so, but I love this, and Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And so, man, I, as I'm studying this, as I'm reading this, I, I struggled with this. I'm sitting there going, I was like John, I'm going, it's like, why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? I mean, it was something that, I mean, you just think and grab, you know, wrap your head around that, and I'm just going, man, this is so puzzling to me as well. And then something became, you know, rather clear to me, and it's, I mean, you know, isn't it funny that sometimes we'll, we'll read the words of Jesus and we'll think it means something else? I mean, does anybody else do that or is that just me? Yeah. And so it's, it's, like, it's like, it's right here, you guys. It's like, let it be so now for thus it is fulfill, fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus knew that for him to fulfill all righteousness according to the law of man, that he would obey the commands of his father and be baptized even though he didn't need to. And that's, I mean, that just that kind of blew me away right there. And so we look at this, and so to equate it back to the coronation of the king, right, we start to get into um, the, the visual here that, that John and Matthew um, record. And it's this vision of, you know, the heavens opening up, 
the Holy Spirit coming down to rest upon Jesus, and then the blessing of God. And so if you think of a coronation, so, you know, I know there's people here that watch like The Crown and, you know, some of these other shows like that. And so we think of the coronation of a king, right? And it's this picture of, you know, it was, it was usually carried out by, you know, the Archbishop of England, which is the highest authority of the kingdom, right? Or, or whether it was the Pope, you know, in Europe. And, and so he was the highest religious authority, according to man, right? And so we see this picture of God, the Father, who is the absolute authority. And he's in heaven, and he sends down his Holy Spirit onto, onto, onto Jesus. And it's, and it's a visual thing here. I mean, it's John is seeing it, and, and everybody, and we, you know, there's no reason not to believe that everybody else isn't seeing it. Because there, there's, there's hordes of people that have come out to the river, and there's this, there's this, this beautiful picture. And it's, and it's actually spoken of, and, and God, when he speaks to John, says, this is how you know who the Messiah is. He goes, I will send down my spirit to be upon him. And so this is an affirmation to Jesus as the Messiah to come. And it's a testament to his sinlessness because at the end, God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I mean, if, if, if Jesus wasn't the sinless savior, do, do we think that God would have really said that? I don't think he would have. I mean, he's, he's, he is affirming that Jesus is the spotless lamb. And so, I got to get some of these notes right. I think I learned a lesson up here. Don't put front to back stuff so you don't, don't know what plate pages you flipped and which ones you haven't. So, <laughs> But anyways, and so it's at this point that we see this is the transition of when Jesus leaves a life of obscurity for the last 30 years. And this is when he truly begins his ministry. And so, as in the coronation of a king, when the archbishop or the pope would bestow upon him the crown, right? The crown was the signal of power. It was the signal that you are the ruler of this land. And then they would oftentimes bless the king to go and rule his nation. And so we see, instead of a crown, the Holy Spirit comes down and rests upon Jesus, and we know that it's the Holy Spirit that empowers him at that point to walk into ministry. And so it is, it's, it is a coronation visual here that this is the ushering in of the new king, in the new kingdom. So some of you might be thinking, like, why is this important? What does this mean? And so my response is, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah and you place your faith and trust in him, this becomes eternally important to you and to me because it is the perfect obedience of Christ that is bestowed upon you and me when we choose to put our trust in him. When we say, I believe you are the Messiah. I believe you are the sacrifice that is in substitute for me. And so we see a picture where God puts our sin on him that was ours. And God puts his righteousness, his perfect 
righteousness on us. Paul says in Philippians 3.9, Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So if we do choose to put our trust in Christ, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. So when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, God treats him as if I've lived his life. God treats Christ, or God treats Christ as if you've lived or if he's dying your death. He punishes Christ as if my sin and your sin was his sin. And now because of this, because of his willingness to be holy, blameless, undefiled, it's because of this that now God treats you and me like we've lived his life. And I don't know about you guys, but I mean, that just, that raises the hairs on the back of my neck because I know, and I hope you guys know, we don't deserve it. We absolutely don't deserve it. But Christ lived a perfect life with perfect obedience. He did everything that God commanded, including being baptized, in order that his perfect life could be credited to your account. And so that now when God looks at the cross, he sees you and he sees me bearing the weight of our own sin. But when he looks at you and he looks at me, he sees Christ, perfect in all righteousness, being covered with his righteousness. It was his life that replaces mine and yours. The perfect life and righteousness that is added to our account as though we have lived it. Friends, John gives two pictures um, in this passage. And he gives a picture of the tree, the fruit tree, and he gives a picture of the farmer harvesting his wheat. And I don't know if you guys have ever watched what, you know, this winnowing fork action looks like. But they used to, they would harvest the grain into, into the barn and they had, they had this floor that they would just pile it on. And actually they would let it sit there and they'd let the animals walk on it. They would walk on it, and they'd crush it, and it would start to separate the wheat from the chaff and the stalk. And so at the proper time, the farmer would go in, and he would scoop up this pile, and he would throw it into the air. And even at the slightest breeze, the chaff, which you couldn't see when it was lying on the ground, you couldn't distinguish what was chaff and what was wheat, would blow away. And I think about this picture, and I say, if we are, if we are in just an empty soul taking up space, like literally when God, when the winds of this world come, man, we're gonna be we're gonna be blown away. It's only the real, it's only the real fruit that falls back to the ground. And so John gives us a picture of this, and and John gives us in both these pictures, he talks about the fire. And he says, he who is coming is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. We know there's 
you know, at least three fires that the Bible speaks of. There's the fire that's seen as like a refiner's fire. There's a fire that, you know, it's, it's this picture of as we're set into this fire, you know, there's a purification process that happens, right? Just as in gold. When they, when they go to purify gold, they put it in the furnace and it melts away and that whatever's left is the purest of gold. So we know that that's one case of fire, but we also know that there's a fire of judgment. You know, we hear time and time again being cast into the lake of fire, the unquenchable fire. And so John is saying, like, there will be a day that judgment does come, and you are going to have to decide if you're going to walk into this or you're going to walk into this. And, and he, gives us, he gives us the way. It's simple, you guys. It says repent. Put your faith Put your trust in God and know that it's not up to you to secure your salvation because I'm telling you what, and I know you guys would probably agree with me, that we've had some baggage in our life. And the penalty for that baggage, we all know, is death. But because of what God's done, we have hope in the kingdom to come, in the future to come. And so as we leave here today, you guys, um, you know, I've just been thinking about the urgency of this message. And, you know, we see disasters all over this country. And, you know, there's floods happening in California right now. And, you know, for a lot of us, we don't think about our, our final day, do we? It's not really a fun subject to think about. But the reality is none of us know the day. Whether it's the coming of the king, as in talked in Revelations, or it's just our simple passing into the next age, Right? We're going to die one way or another. I mean, I've heard, I heard someone guys say, hey, you guys, the stats are out. 100% of us are going to die <laughs> one way or another. And so, so just know that you and I are not guaranteed tomorrow. That was, that was, that was beautiful, Chet. <laughs> but we do know this, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we know that tomorrow is not guaranteed. You guys, I mean, we, we live next to the largest super volcano in the world. I love that. Because if it explodes, I don't have to deal with the aftermath, right? I mean, we're going to be, boom, gone. But the reality here, you guys, is we don't know the day. We don't know the time. We don't know the season that this final judgment is going to be upon us. And so John is saying, don't wait don't wait until you think you, it's like, ah, I'll, get that, I'll get to that next week. You know, I'm going to start living my life for God next week because there might not be a next week. There might not be a tomorrow. There might not be an afternoon. And I don't mean that to be like, oh, you know, well, that's kind of depressing. You know, the reality is that, that we just, we don't know our number. We don't know our time. But God knows that our days are numbered. And so as we close, you guys, you know, I'm just, I'm convicted in my heart to say, what am I doing today to live for Christ? What am I day, doing today to die to this, this body, this flesh, this spirit to turn and live to Christ? Because, I mean, you guys, for 30-some years, I, I, I did try to seek what this flesh wanted. And it was, it was ugly. It led to a, to a path of destruction and despair and loneliness and brokenness. telling you what, you guys, there is life. There is life in these words. There is life in who God has become in my life. 
And my wife will testify, I'm not perfect. I'm definitely not perfect. But I am not the man that I was three years ago or four years ago. And it is only because of the power of Christ and the revelation of his word that I can stand before you today and proclaim that God is the King of Kings. And whether you like it or not, he will be, he will be called Lord of Lords. And at his name, you guys, every one of us will bow. And every tongue will confess, you guys, that he is Lord. I don't care if he's accepted or not. It says in here that we will, the world will declare him King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And so as we, as we close here today, um, I just challenge each and every one of you to say, what can I give? What can I give up more to pursue him with a heart that's, that is ignited with the fire that Jesus promises us as we walk in his ways. And so as the worship team um, starts, I'd just like to close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you for your truth in a world that doesn't really know what truth is. God, we can sit here and we can be firm and we can be steadfast in what your truth says. And we know it to be true, God. We've seen, we've seen the truths play out in our own lives. And we're thankful, and we're, we're thankful that you show us through that, that your truth is real. And so, God, as we, as we go out from this place today, you know, I, I pray that, that we are not the same, that we don't leave here unchanged. I pray that we're a people that when, when people stop and look at us, they go, man, what's going on with this? group of people. They're putting others first. They're putting, you know, their, their people around them ahead of themselves. They're not, you know, just all in it for them, for their own gain, for their own selfish desires. And God, I pray that if there's anybody sitting in here that has been wrestling with this and, and is wondering what this life is all about, God, I pray that you would just give them boldness to step out in faith because we all know that are in you that it is worth it. And so God, I just, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have been doing in my heart in preparation for this over the last month. Because I know that dwelling in your word, it, it causes a change. It's inevitable. And I thank you for the change that you've been making in my life and that you've been making in my brothers' and sisters' lives. God, we know that it's only because of your Son and the power of your Spirit that we are able to pray to you. And God, I am thankful for that.